0: I should explain the title. Uh, I borrowed it from the memoirs of of Dennis Healy, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer in in the 1974-79 British Labour government. And he quoted one of his 12th century predecessors, a certain Richard, son of Nigel, as only Dennis Healy could. And I won't give the Latin, but the English, I think is a very true observation for the highest skill at the Exchequer does not lie in calculations, but in judgments of all kinds. What I was trying to do in this book, which came out about 10 months ago, was to look at economic policy making in those post-war decades if possible, outside of the shadow of 1984, because many discussions of the post-war decade, I think, are overshadowed by the uh, restructuring of economic and social policy, which took place after 1984, and I suggest that, that many of these interpretations, whether they are celebrating 1984, or are very critical of it, can perhaps be quite a historical I suppose the dominant interpretations are those associated with the neoliberal right, if I can use that term. Don Brash's um, comments are fairly representative, um, speaking for many in alluding explicitly to Hayek's road to serfdom, even if the serfdom that he referred to was bureaucratic rather than police state his summary is a fairly standard summary of uh, the policy regime as it's represented, and everything he says about uh, about the uh, the regime is true so far as the final Muldoon term is concerned. But uh, one doesn't have to dig very far to find that. Um, Things were not always as extreme as that, and I would argue perhaps that the final Muldoon term 1981-84 was not the logical conclusion of the entire post-war regime, but might be described as anomalous arising out of particular circumstances. Michael Bassett has written at some length in a similar vein in his book on on the state in New Zealand, uh, which came out about 15 years ago, and I I suppose in a way I wished explicitly to engage with Dr. Bassett's criticisms, which he makes at length and and with with a considerable amount of evidence marshaled. During the last general election campaign, the Labour Party suggested that it might be worth reconsidering the emphasis of monetary policy that is prescribed in the Reserve Bank Act 1989. And a neoliberal Australian think tank, the Centre for Independent Studies, was rather unimpressed. According to one Luke Melpass of this centre, 1984 New Zealand was known as the Polish shipyard of the South Pacific for its inefficiency and protectionism. And he criticised the Labour Party for espousing interventionism and arbitrary government and seeking to return to an explicitly protectionist, xenophobic 1970s Keynesian fortress. And this sort of discourse is quite common. Uh, I must confess I've never really understood what the problem with a Polish shipyard might be. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a, a term that has entered the lexicon. one of those, those shorthand boo words. I guess I'd have to say too that some of the characterisations from the left are scarcely more subtle. Some implicitly represent the post-war regime as as some sort of social democratic paradise, which could have gone on forever, if not for the policy coup of 1984. And the language of coup is explicit, for instance, in Alistair Barry's film Someone Else's Country, which opens with the Chilean Air Force planes attacking the presidential palace in Pinochet's coup of 9-11-1973. Other left nationalist accounts emphasize torpor, a long sleep under more or less benevolent British colonialism. And Dr. Such, of course, is perhaps the most uh, voluminous and articulate exponent of this view. In his many writings, Such represented New Zealand as being trapped in economic and cultural dependence upon Great Britain, a dependence mediated through political representatives, the press, most of the trade unions, farmers, financiers, importers, and so on. Such for various reasons reserved particular criticism, almost venom, one might say, for the dominant figures in the first Labour government, arguing that Fraser's considerable influence was placed alongside the forces in New Zealand at shackling change and development. Fraser and Nash, he said, did not look beyond the modification of a colony. Less surprising for such was the National Party's unquestioned acceptance of what James Balich would later call neo uh, recolonization. Given the National Party's um, natural constituencies, uh, the emphasis upon, as uh, such put it, living well by encouraging the grass to grow was unsurprising. Later writing by Bruce Jessen in the 1980s and James Balich a decade ago is in some respects at least merely a variation on this theme. What I wanted instead to do was to address the topic in terms of the perceptions, the ideas and the competing interests which shaped the views and actions of ministers and officials in managing a small externally dependent economy. In the background, the broad framework emphasised two related themes. One was the more or less Keynesian, more or less welfare-oriented, more or less development-oriented post-war settlement that prevailed to a greater or lesser extent in in most Western democracies after 1945. That settlement, as many writers have have, um, emphasised, was forged out of the catastrophes of Depression and World War. The other frame that, that is in the background all the way through is that of a settler economy in transition. New Zealand, like Australia, Canada, some other regions and states emerged as a particular type of of political economy in the 19th century, prosperity based on the rapid swamping of the indigenous people, exporting a relatively narrow range of staples to Britain, the dominant role of British finance and economic development, and underdeveloped manufacturing sectors, and by 1930 the problems with this model were evident. Well, rather than attempt to summarise the whole book, what I will do is outline perhaps a few of the more interesting or important things that that have emerged, uh, covering the period across from the late 40s to the early 80s. It's a commonplace that the economy remained tightly controlled for some years after the end of the war in 1945 and partly as many writers have noted the Labour government believed it necessary to take a hands-on role for all the reasons of development, redistribution and rational planning. Post war reconstruction was a massive task with international shortages of materials, a considerable backlog of capital formation in both the public and the private sectors, and Britain still very much our main market in desperate straits. And all that's emphasised in the standard accounts. But there's a bit more to the story than that and what I think hasn't previously been been quite appreciated is the extent to which the British applied sheer coercion to the New Zealand and Australian governments uh, in the second half of the 1940s. Need to wind back to 1932 to the Ottawa Conference at which the Commonwealth was reshaped as a defensive economic bloc, uh, preferential trading within, barriers more or less outside. But one consequence of that was the emergence of the Stirling area, those countries which did most of their trade with Britain and consequently held their overseas reserves in sterling. During the war, sterling area members agreed to pool in London whatever American dollars they earned by exporting to the United States or other dollar countries, and the American trade surplus with the Stirling area meant that dollars were increasingly scarce. At the end of 1945, broke, shattered and desperate, Great Britain sought a loan from the United States, and Lord Keynes led the British negotiations in what was really the last year of his life. There were strong isolationist currents in Washington, and in order to get the loan from the Americans, Keynes had to show a reluctant Congress and a reluctant Truman administration that they would not be taking sole responsibility for bailing Britain out into the Stirling area. The Americans demanded and Keynes had no difficulty in agreeing to a partial surrender of the various sterling Area members' London balances. In other words, if the Americans were to stump up £900 million, New Zealand, Australia, India and the others would be persuaded or compelled to hand over some of their reserves to the British government. Overall, Keynes hoped for about 750 million pounds from the United States and about 880 million from the Stirling area. The Indian balances were a big prize at half a billion pounds, but Keynes and his former student Hugh Dalton, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Attlee's government, thought that Australia and New Zealand could be picked off first, even though their balances amounted to only about 5% of the total combined. Keynes argued that New Zealand and Australia, having built up significant sterling balances during the war by exporting to Britain, were profiteering at British expense. In fact, New Zealand's long-term debt and Australia's to Great Britain exceeded their sterling balances, so they were hardly profiteering, and there would, as Keynes noted, be a certain embarrassment in suggesting that they should agree to scale down the balances held by them while leaving their long-term debt untouched. It has to be said this was an embarrassment which Keynes speedily overcame. His insistence that Britain alone had suffered financially has been described as the plaintive note of ethical superiority with which the British customarily preface their begging letters. Mm -hmm. Keynes admitted that handing over some of the London balances would be highly distasteful to and strongly resisted by the other parties concerned. There is no means by which we can avoid political difficulties of a high order. He suggested various ways of manipulating things, mostly around very long time frames for access to the balances. But the essential point was that if the sterling area countries didn't comply with British demands, their balances would not be available for expenditure anywhere. In other words, unless the Australasian governments agreed to surrender a portion of the accumulated balance, the British would freeze the lot. Early in 1946, Keynes and Dalton pressed Peter Fraser to cancel half New Zealand's 55 million sterling balance. Fraser expressed New Zealand's willingness to assist even to the point of sacrifice, but reminded the British that there was a huge backlog of development to be made up in New Zealand, which required overseas funds. The British emphasised that the whole sterling area depended on British recovery, but they also deployed some rather strange justifications for their demand, such as the claim that they had not charged New Zealand for the cost of supplies to, to the 2nd New Zealand Division in the Middle East during the early 1940s. Uh, in the first place, that was factually incorrect. In, in the second place, um, I wonder whether Fraser was tempted to give the British a bill for Crete and Monte Cassino whatever about that fraser deliberately procrastinated on cancellation now malcolm's told me that this is not a nationalist story but i'm afraid i can't see it on one level in any other sense um and i'll come back to that in a a minute fraser deliberately procrastinated there was no advantage to going first if there were no guarantees that other sterling area countries would come to the party The whole problem required a multilateral approach, which the British had never tried to develop. Finally, in March 1947, Fraser announced what most accounts still call a gift of £10 million to the British out of this country's sterling reserves. Australia wrote off £25 million at the same time, and no other sterling area country ever did anything. In the classic phrase, the British had made Fraser an offer he couldn't refuse. But nor was this all. The other implication of the sterling Area was the pool of dollars earned by member countries from exporting to the United States, Canada and other dollar trading nations. And the direction of British policy after the war was to pressure other members of the Stirling Area so that the British capacity to earn or save dollars would be maximised. In other words, to maximise British capacity to direct exports to the United States and save on imports from the United States. What this meant in practice was that New Zealand and Australia were urged to continue to maximise primary exports to Britain because Britain could pay for these exports in sterling, not in dollars. And because New Zealand and Australia needed to import capital goods and consumer goods, their ability to export to the United States, earn the currency to import from the United States, was severely limited by the British demand. In August 1947, as well as the continued all-out supply by New Zealand of food, the British Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, on the left there, urged New Zealand to further restrict dollar expenditure, and to accept delays in imports, not only by not taking more readily available American goods, but also by not asking Britain for manufactured goods that Britain could sell to the Americans or to other dollar countries. New Zealand would thus be caught both ways, unable to earn dollars itself, nor even to substitute British capital and consumer goods for American. Atley lectured Fraser, Fraser's on the right, on how to run the New Zealand economy, urging careful consideration of the immediate essentiality of capital works programmes. Atley well understood that his requests were close to unacceptable, as he offered a text that Fraser could release for public consumption. Well, alongside a few sort of public professions of loyalty, in private, New Zealand ministers and officials were talking a rather different language. In private, they warned the British not to push their luck. The Dominion patience was not unlimited, and excessive severity would lead to a weakening of Commonwealth economic connections. In the New Zealand Treasury, the British economic relationship came under cautious review. In November 1947, Secretary Bernard Ashwin noted that if Britain carried on like this, then New Zealand would need to reorient trade toward earning dollars independently. This might mean developing manufactured exports and tourism. Ashwin's deputy, Edward Greensmith, was distinctly hostile to the Stirling area, and in almost as many words recommended telling the British to get lost and going after dollar markets, diversifying it to processed exports and footing it on the world stage. So the usual accounts of unthinking integration with the British economy after 1945 must be qualified. Much of the integration was under protest, And senior figures in the New Zealand Treasury were questioning the British connection, if cautiously, not in 1973, not in 1961, but in 1948. To that extent, I think there is, if not explicitly nationalist rhetoric, certainly a rhetoric of national and independent development. The British attitude that the Stirling area should be run as an instrument of British economic recovery made a mockery of the rhetoric of Commonwealth fraternity, and Atsley's willingness to sacrifice the political fortunes of the Australian and New Zealand Labour parties, letting them take the blame for continued austerity, showed that he placed even less importance on social democratic fraternity. Continued austerity undoubtedly contributed to the defeat in 1949 of both the Australian and the New Zealand Labour governments. Certainly by the mid-1950s, the weakness of the British market was becoming clear to policymakers in Wellington and Canberra. And uh, this topic has been very well discussed by John Singleton, who used to be a Victoria, and Paul Robertson uh, from Tasmania in a book on British and Australasian economic relations what I teased out and perhaps reinforced was the slightly activist role that some ministers and officials played in dealing with that weakness. Once British bulk purchase of New Zealand exports ended in 1954, the search for new markets couldn't be put off. And I think Keith Holyoke, who was then Minister of Agriculture, emerged as an astute judge of this situation. His colleague Jack Watts, the Minister of Industries and Commerce and then from 1954 to 57 Minister of Finance, was also well aware that with the end of bulk purchase greater efforts will have to be made to sell in the best markets wherever they may be. Holyoke and Watts were quite prepared to challenge London on the unequal preferential relationship. As well as maintaining the position for New Zealand's exports into Britain, the key point that they sought was to revise Ottawa's preferences for British goods in the New Zealand market, so that New Zealand could develop bilateral trade agreements elsewhere. Holyoke led a ministerial delegation to London in April of 1957, and all they got was continued access without restriction on quantity, but no guarantee on price until 1967, along with annual consultations and unspecific commitments to consider the position if New Zealand's trading situation was being seriously threatened. And to get even that, Holyoke had to threaten to reduce tariff preferences for British goods in New Zealand. Once again, public rhetoric and private negotiation may be quite different things. And Holyoke's successor in the Labour government at the end of the 50s, Gerry Skinner, had to do the same, threatened to abandon Ottawa preferences entirely if the British would not agree to reduced import preferences for their goods in New Zealand. So I'm reinforced in the view which I have long held, that the British accession to the European economic community, as it then was in 1973, was neither a surprise nor a shock. And that James Balich's comment about New Zealand only growing up in that year, when Mother Britain ran off to join the Franco-German commune, might be a wonderful one-liner, but it's not really what happened. Okay. Agriculture, finance and trade ministers, Holyoke, Watts, Nordmeyer, Jerry Skinner and Jack Marshall all worked very hard from 1955 or 56 until 1971 and after to defend New Zealand's trading interests. There was disenchantment with the British relationship at the highest levels of the New Zealand government from the mid-50s, if not earlier. And Nordmeyer's observation in 1960 that every effort must be made to enlarge and diversify markets for our export products and to persuade other countries to moderate their policies of agricultural protectionism is one that any trade minister in the next 50 years could have uttered. So the legend that New Zealand policymakers blithely cherished the illusion of the British market until either the 1960s or 1973 is, I suggest, not really supported. Another legend that I engaged with is that the serious balance of payments crisis which confronted the incoming Labour government at the end of 1957 was the reason that from 1958, and to quote Dr Such, for the first time in New Zealand's history, the government set about actively developing a somewhat broader industrial base. since Dr Such became Secretary of Industries and Commerce on the 1st of January 1958, this might be read as an attempt to enhance the record of his department and perhaps his contribution in the policy making structure Uh, i think we badly need a history of the department of industries and commerce slash trade and industry it's the other great economic department after the treasury Um, it really is a story that needs i think to be researched and told well what i suggest about such is that is that uh, he was an articulate and forceful advocate of industrial development, and in many respects his thinking on policy matters generally was was, uh, very important, but he did not invent policies of industrial development. It was hardly news in 1957, as he wrote, that the agriculture and service sectors would not grow enough to maintain full employment. Walter Nash had said that 20 years previously, and it remained a constant theme in Labour Party thinking. In his final report as Minister of Industries and Commerce in 1947, Dan Sullivan noted that industrial development policy was essential, moving beyond import substituting industrialisation to develop manufactured exports out of New Zealand raw materials, fruit and vegetable processing, textiles, chemicals, forest products. So Sullivan anticipated what such would a decade later call manufacturing in depth. And Sullivan also anticipated competition from mass-producing low-wage countries and urged a focus on quality as New Zealand's industrial signature. Sullivan died in 1947 and his uh, immediate successor as Minister of Industries and Commerce was Arnold Nordmeyer, And Nordmeyer expressed exactly the same views. The Holland National Government moved in that direction as well, perhaps with slightly less rhetorical vigour, but their major industrial development uh, was the pulp and paper industry from the mid-1950s. And if that was not manufacturing in depth, developing New Zealand's raw materials into advanced manufactured exports, then I don't know what is. Such regarded a steel industry as a key uh, indicator of industrial maturity. And in 1965, he would cite studies abroad of industries contributing to economic maturity, iron and steel first in the list. Now, one might argue that Such's thinking implied that there was a one size fits all model of economic development perhaps, perhaps not. Economic thinking was less critical of such approaches then than later. But again, such in his advocacy of a steel industry followed others. Again, Dan Sullivan in the 1940s had been advocating it. The national government in the 1950s began uh, exploratory processes and set up a state-owned um state-owned company to um, investigate developments of the iron sands one reason that the new zealand steel industry took so long to emerge whatever its later problems was not that no one had thought of it before 1958 but as as, uh, ross galbreath shows in his history of the dsir new zealand's iron sands are rather heavily laced with titanium and it took the dsir quite a long time to work out how to process those iron sands into usable form. It also took rather a long time to develop New Zealand's electricity generating infrastructure. That's a a key point as well. Only in the mid-50s was it clear that that a Cook Strait cable was feasible. So it's not simply that somebody took the road to Damascus uh, in 1958-59. There was a lot going on in the background. Until 1960, Such tended to emphasise import substituting industrialisation, but after then increasingly he emphasised export industrialisation as well. He was hardly alone in this, but his views on that question could be sometimes contrary, even perverse. One of Jack Marshall's priorities as trade minister from 1960 was the partial free trade agreement with Australia. In February 1961, John McEwen, Black Jack, the Australian Trade Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, Marshall's exact opposite number, invited Marshall to Canberra for discussion of long-term arrangements for the coordination of the Australian and New Zealand economies. Well, the negotiations took some time, more than three years in fact, Some ministers and officials in New Zealand thought that access to the Australian market could give New Zealand manufacturing economies of scale, which would improve efficiency. Others were sceptical. Such, in fact, was so sceptical of the whole affair that he did not lead the New Zealand negotiations, this task being undertaken by a deputy secretary, Jim Moriarty. Now, one key element in New Zealand's agenda for what became known as as NAFTA, the first NAFTA, was getting access for forest products and pulp and paper in the Australian market. Australia was a net importer of forest products and in all conceivable circumstances would remain so until the end of the century. Such, however, thought that arguments for a free trade in forest products with Australia relied on a hypothetical and highly optimistic assessment He thought there was no guarantee of an Australian market, which is rather the point of a trade agreement, I should have thought, and that any agreement would lead to destructive competition. Contrarily, he then argued that forest products industry must and will expand dramatically. Ministers might well have asked where to, if not to Australia, given Australia's lack of manufacturing capacity and radiata pine. Even if Australia did achieve self sufficiency in forest products by 2000, that would give New Zealand a third of a century and a strong continuing position once securely in the market. Now, Such was only one voice in policy making, and he was required in, in circumstances that perhaps did not reflect total credit on the national government to retire in 1965. As Malcolm has shown in his History of the Treasury, growth was increasingly on the agenda from the early 60s. A succession of industrial export development conferences in the 1960s, from the Industrial Development Conference in 1960 to the big National Development Conference in 1968, debated the ways and means at length. And the files are full of the contending positions of Treasury and Industries and Commerce. Industries and Commerce reflected such as well-established views in favour of import substituting heavy industry, with manufacturing for export only in principle of equal priority to import substitution. Treasury, under the influence of the rising star Henry Lang, who would later be secretary, saw industrialisation not as an end in itself, but as only one aspect of the expansion of the total New Zealand economy. Treasury was beginning very strongly to argue that exporting of, of anything and everything that could be sold was the priority and indeed to base policy on the assumption that we shall not be able to increase exports and that local production should be encouraged almost regardless of cost, is not only a policy of despair, but is also doomed to failure. Export-oriented industries, in Lang's argument, would necessarily be internationally competitive, and would that would in itself increase the rate of economic growth by increasing productivity. I don't want to suggest that such was out on an eccentric limb. But I I do suggest, I think, that that a a critical reflection on his arguments and ideas, uh, such as Tony Endres has begun in an article published some years ago, might be useful. Such his views reflected the strong influence in development economics of the Argentine economist Raul Prebisch, who had argued for some time that relying on primary exports trapped a peripheral country in declining terms of trade, and industrialization was required for import substitution and foreign exchange savings. But as Brian Easton has noted in his portrait of Lang, Lang's was a cosmopolitan world in which nations succeeded by engagement rather than avoidance and Lang's thinking reflected an increasing skepticism in development economics about import substituting industrialization, a view which stressed the benefits of participating in the international division of labor. Whatever the merits of the contending positions, certainly New Zealand policymakers were hardly insulated from overseas thinking. Well, what, finally, of Muldoon? after 1975. I I have quite a lot to say about Muldoon in the book, perhaps unsurprisingly, given his dominant um, influence. And uh, perhaps on a personal note, having uh, been quite young during Muldoon's prime ministership, and um, come of age as as, as a protesting student in those years, it was a very interesting, not to say, slightly difficult exercise to think through a history through which one had lived i'll just pick up a couple of important points about muldoon though when he came to power at the end of 1975 he um, began fairly savage retrenchment through 1976 and into the first half of 1977. most accounts of those years imply or state that Muldoon eased off simply because he was afraid of losing the 1978 election, which in fact, as as some of you will remember, he in fact nearly did. But the context is interesting. I was directed by a paper written by the late Frank Holmes to the realisation that Henry Lang's diary of Muldoon's first year as Prime Minister is in the Turnbull Library and a fascinating document it is. Lang, it is abundantly clear, disliked Muldoon's abrasiveness, or if you prefer sheer rudeness, and also thought that Muldoon was arrogant and unwilling to listen to advice. What probably wrecked the relationship was when Muldoon released Treasury's confidential post-election briefing. They were confidential in those days, it was only in 1984 that publishing them became the norm. Muldoon released Treasury's confidential briefing with an accompanying media statement that completely misrepresented what Lange had said. Treasury had described a grave situation in the wake of the first oil shock with the worst terms of trade for a generation. Malcolm tells the story of, of how they had to pin extra sheets of graph paper to the wall until the deficit literally hit the floor. Inflation... The government deficit and private consumption all needed to fall in order to allow export-oriented investment and Treasury recommended a firm incomes policy was necessary to prevent any improvements being cancelled out by an increased demand for imports. Government charges should be reviewed and some increased. Spending should be controlled and subsidies on foodstuffs maintained but not increased. Muldoon's accompanying press statement was crude political propaganda, claiming that a situation even more serious than he had predicted during the election campaign was disclosed in a report furnished by the Secretary to the Treasury. The report, said Muldoon, exposed the shallowness of the soothing electioneering statements on the economy made by Labour, who had squandered their inheritance and burdened the country with massive debt. Uh, it's remarkable that, um, if perhaps entirely, not entirely surprising, that Muldoon's campaign language in 1975 almost completely ignored the international context and simply blamed the Labour government for New Zealand's difficult situation. But Muldoon's statement was simply untrue, because what Treasury had said was that the sharp increase in the rate of growth of government spending was justifiable in 1975-76 as a temporary expedient but that spending would need to be controlled. Lang, I think, was outraged that his confidential advice had been enlisted and misrepresented in political controversy, and indeed he would take early retirement at the end of 1976. It's clear that Muldoon's cuts of 1976-77 were far harsher than Treasury had recommended and drove the economy into a recessionary spiral. When Muldoon moderated his course in late 1977, Lang could perhaps have claimed some vindication. But even more interesting is the Treasury advice to Muldoon in late 1977 and during 1978, which was for precisely the sort of easing off of retrenchment that Muldoon did. Muldoon certainly wavered in the face of rising unemployment in the second half of 1977, but so did his advisers. Yet Muldoon wears all the blame. Uh, One one official later said that October 1977 was the time when Muldoon stopped trying to be a statesman. But Noel Luff, Lang's successor as Secretary to the Treasury, warned in mid-October 1977 of a weakening economy and recession into 1978. Treasury feared falling business confidence, an intensified recessionary spiral, which could be averted only by a modest general reflationary policy of a tax cut, more funding for regional development, looser monetary policy, more export incentives, and job creation through the public sector. And officials had initially favoured more selective reflation, but they rapidly concluded that with business confidence very fragile, the government had to take visible action before Christmas 1977. Reflation would worsen the balance of payments deficit, but the long-run costs, said Treasury, must be weighed against the long-run costs of a severe recession. Well, many studies of Muldoon have emphasized that he was erratic in policy, and so he was. Having moderated retrenchment in 1977 and 78, And in the 1978 budget significantly moderated income tax scales, something for which he never got much credit. In 1979, he moved in the direction of very considerable reviews of protected industries. Of much greater encouragement of foreign investment and of allowing a managed downward adjustment of the overvalued exchange rate through what was known as the crawling peg. The Reserve Bank was enthusiastic about all these measures and had publicly advocated them. The bank indeed later described the 1979 budget as a turning point for the longer term development of the New Zealand economy and a significant progression in attitudes toward resolving the fundamental problems still facing the economy. The freeze of 1982-84, which defines Muldoon's historical reputation, was only part of the story of Muldoon, and not, as I suggested at the beginning, necessarily the logical conclusion of the whole post-war regime. Treasury's 1984 briefing to the incoming Longy government maintained that there had been a decade-long unwillingness to adjust to changing external circumstances after the first oil shock in 1973. This was somewhat misleading. Adjustment may have been insufficient, but it was in many senses attempted. It also perhaps understated the extent to which policy, both under Muldoon and under Rowling in 72, 75, had reflected official advice. This might be awkward, but Muldoon remains a very complex figure his nine years, eight and a half years as Prime Minister, very complex, and I think like the rest of the period that I've been talking about, really uh, not well served by shorthand statements. So policymaking is usually very fluid, very messy, um, conducted under circumstances, very seldom of policymakers' own choosing. And if my book does anything, I hope it will suggest the complexity of circumstance. It wasn't written, as a defence of the post-war regime, nor was it written as an attack on it, but in the hope that we might understand some of the complexity behind the shorthand. Thanks.